You know, we, we don't get to pick the weather, but I think it's safe to say that the weather is far from the most important thing today, and we get to rejoice together uh, as two congregations gathered as maybe even a greater expression of what it is to be the body of Christ than what either of our congregations could do on our own. Um, and I just want to say, like, Adam, Wes, we're just so glad you're able to be here. Uh, I hope everyone really just thoroughly harasses Pastor Philip for having a family gathering out of town today. Um, but, uh, but we obviously miss Pastor Philip and his family as well. And uh, if you're thinking of, of doing what Philip or what Wes was talking about with, with helping little kids with math, just remember this is all about making the little things count. Uh, just let it land. Just let it land. That's. Uh, I mean, I am just drastically underappreciated here uh, for what I, I feel like I bring to the table. Um, let's, let's pray because we desperately need that before we enter God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity we have together as two fellowships to sing your praises together because we have one Lord one Christ, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. And we are so grateful for that. And so we come together to you as, as two congregations gathered as one, it, all of us in need of hearing from your word. All of us in need of being taught and corrected and trained in righteousness. And Lord, I pray that this time would be useful for those things and that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, exposing in us the things that are unpleasant to you, reminding us of your glory, reminding us of, of what we just sang, of behold our God seated on his throne. So Lord, as we open your word, I pray that we would, in reading and studying your word, that our, our adoration for you would grow. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever felt the name to clear your name? Maybe there was a rumor shared about you that, that wasn't true. Uh, maybe somebody was saying things behind your back. Maybe you had a, a work performance that just didn't go as planned and didn't really reflect who you are and how you want people to know you. Or maybe you just feel like, boy, I can just present myself better than this. And in the case of maybe rumors, even if the rumor wasn't awful, but just untrue and not a, a full representation of you, you cared about it because we care about our identities. A good reputation is hard-earned. We have to work hard to get a good name. Showing up on time, working hard, getting things done, caring for people, speaking the right way. And so when our name is in some way, great or small, maligned, it matters to us. And I just want to put this out there, that your name, no matter what it is, is relatively pretty small in that there's not a commandment in Scripture to not take your name in vain. Am I right? Like, there's no, like, thou shalt not take the name of Mark in vain. Doesn't exist in the Bible. Maybe the message, but not the Bible. Um, but it is very clear that we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. 
So let's think, if we care this much about our name being represented well, how much more does the Lord care that his name and his reputation be upheld properly? I think a great deal. And so uh, Highland Park, we're, we're actually inviting you into the preaching series that we're in the middle of. We're going through Mark uh, for what some people feels like forever, but I think we are actually hurrying it a little. But we're in Mark. We are now at the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 9. But what's been going up to this is all through Mark, there's been this question of who in the world is Jesus? And at one point, King Herod thinks he has an idea that, that Jesus is, uh, according to the crowds, according to the populace, that he's some sort of uh, prophet 2.0, whether that be Elijah, Isaiah, John the Baptist, or someone else. And then not long before this passage, what we were studying a couple weeks ago, is Jesus said to the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Turns out they have all the same ideas. So these people that are following Jesus who are getting fed all the food, who are hearing the teaching, and their minds are thinking, well, this guy has got to be one of the above, the, one of the prophets, Elijah come back, or John the Baptist resurrected with his head really well intact and not even the slightest bit of scar tissue. And these are the theories. And so now we come to Mark 9, and Jesus is going to take his reputation into his own hands in answering this question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? And the Mount of Transfiguration, as we know it, because of the handy italicized letters in our Bible that probably mean more to us than they ought to, is a lot of things going on. But this morning, I'm going to contend that this is one of the things going on is Jesus saying, here's who I am, and God the Father saying, here's who he is, and Jesus again saying, here's who I am. It's Jesus clearing his name. Jesus needs us to know, and quite frankly, we desperately need to know who he actually is. He, that he's not a recycled prophet, that he's not a human-centered Messiah and, and, and a Messiah that is therefore unfit to suffer for us, but he is someone completely different. In, in terms, contextually, of the blind man, you remember a couple weeks ago, Westchester, we talked about a man that, that Jesus pulled aside to heal from blindness. And Jesus spit in his eyes, which is pretty weird, but then Jesus said, open your eyes, and what do you see? And the guy couldn't see everything all that clearly. And then Jesus touched his eyes and healed him. And we, one of the things we talked about is this is a picture of us. That sometimes we can get this truth about Jesus, but we only have a partial grasp of it. So then when we look around, it's like everyone's looking like trees, and we need Jesus to come and say, here's who I really am, so we can see clearly and worship him fully and follow him to the greatest extent. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up, and he makes sure that there is no need for any vision correction at all, that it is abundantly clear. And so that's enough talking about setting up Mark 9. Let's read now, starting in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, 
as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, uh, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. It's one of the most subtle, obvious observations in the Bible. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen up from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how, it is written, and how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Here we have Jesus and God the Father together showing us and saying exactly who Jesus is. And the first thing that we see, I, I want you to view this passage as on the mountain and on the way down from the mountain. That's what we, just to, just to give you a little bit of shape for the passage, it's them going up and getting, being on the top of the mountain and then them coming down. So at the top of the mountain, we see that Jesus is the glorious Christ. See, there was some confusion earlier because when Jesus asked the disciples, who do the crowd say I am? They're like, oh, you're, you're Elijah, you're John the Baptist, you're one of the other prophets. And he goes, well, who do you say I am? And Peter goes, you are the Christ or you are the Messiah. And then right after that, Jesus goes, hey, by the way, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And Peter's like, that's not true because messiahs don't suffer and die, Jesus. Let me tell you how this works. And so there's this paradigm explosion for the disciples that Jesus, who is the Messiah, would suffer and die. And here, because, because in their mind, they were having this human-centered Messiah, a David-like guy who would come and win and defeat the Philistines, or in this case, the Romans. But Jesus isn't a human-centered Messiah. He's not a political Messiah. He is a heavenly Messiah. He is the glorious Christ, the glorious Messiah. And so he brings them up on the mountain, and, and up on the mountain there are three wonders that take place before them. The first is, is we see this, with, that Jesus has this out-of-this-world splendor, that he shows his glory with an out-of-this-world splendor, this radiant, listen to how, how uh, Mark describes him, radiant, intensely white, no one on earth could bleach this. This isn't oxyclean white. This is heavenly white. Jesus at this point is like you imagine this glowing. It's, there's, uh, for you Old Testament buffs, this might remind you of when Moses comes down from the mountain and he has to put a veil over his face because his face is glowing. Well, this is all of Jesus. He's like this walking, moving, breathing LED light going around the mountain. And what's happened here 
is that the veil between heaven and earth has been pulled up just a little bit so that the disciples see Jesus in a new way. They've always been wondering, who is he? Who's this guy that commands the waves and the sea and they stop? Who's this guy that commands demons like this? Who's this guy that can teach the word with such authority? And here, these three are getting this glimpse of that's who he is. As we read through Mark, it's interesting, at the beginning of Mark, when Jesus is encountering these demons, the demons lose their mind when they see Jesus. You think of in Mark 5, when Jesus goes and, and they find the man who's possessed by all the demons, and, and he says his name is Legion, because there's so many demons in him, and what this legion of demons says to Jesus is, oh, Jesus, son of God, I adjure you not to torment me. And the disciples are looking over at Jesus like, that dude has bad sandals. Like he's, he told us we have to be homeless to follow him and demons are saying like, please don't torment me. There's something amiss here. Well, the demons were seeing that heavenly reality of Jesus, the spiritual reality of Jesus the whole time. And the disciples were seeing the dry root that had come up out of the ground like what Isaiah points us to, that there's nothing to draw us to his appearance. But here on this mountain, that veil of heaven is pulled up. And we, as 21st century Christians who stand on the theological shoulders of theological giants, we know that Jesus was fully God and fully man. But here in this moment is a particularly, the particularly, there it is, rare glimpse of the, the full deity of Christ. We're getting a glimpse of that with this radiant white, this heavenly glory manifested on earth before them. And this is not a new glory that was given to Jesus in this moment. This is the glory that he had always had from eternity past, the glory that he had, but it kind of set to the side when he came down and humbled himself and took on the form of a servant made in human likeness being found in appearance as a man, and it's glory that he holds today. And so he is the glorious Christ with an out-of-this-world splendor, and he is the glorious Christ who fulfills the Old Testament. Because suddenly there's two guests, Elijah and Moses, and they're talking with Jesus. Now I want to point out before we go to their conversation with Jesus, and, and especially Peter's uh, attempt at entering the conversation, there's a significance to these two guests in particular. This isn't some sort of Old Testament greatest hits or like they drew two Old Testament names out of the hat and like, let's see here. Oh, we got David and Daniel. Oh, they're busy. We'll go with Moses and Elijah. That'll work. These two are here for a reason and they're here for what they represent, the law and the prophets. God's promise of walking with people and the adherence to walking with people. The timeline that started with in the beginning was God. He created heaven and earth. So we start with that and we end with the prophets who are preaching repentance up to and throughout the days of exile. It is God's word. It is your Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi as we have it. Genesis through 2 Chronicles as the Jews had it. And it is pointing to Jesus as the one who fulfills these things. So what in the world were they talking about? 
Some people might think Elijah and Moses are coming as two guys who have been around for a while to give advice. But that would deny the fact that Jesus is the Ancient of Days who spoke creation into existence with his Father. It would also deny the fact that Jesus is God and he doesn't need advice even from the likes of Moses and Elijah. I mean, what are they going to tell him? Moses could be like, all right, Jesus, it's going to get frustrating. Let me tell you from personal experience how not to handle your anger. Because when you handle your anger wrong, it doesn't go well. And then Elijah's like, all right, yeah, it's going to go wrong. Uh, but I'm, I, let me give you some running lessons. Maybe you haven't figured out these lakes things, but I know how to beat a chariot. Or when these people frustrate you, I'm really good at smiting. And I have a buddy that's been really good with the she-bears. And we could figure this out. Um, I don't think they're giving advice to Jesus. I think what's most likely is, is maybe a combination of three things. They're praising Jesus, obviously. He is the Son of God. They know this better than the disciples do. I think it is also very likely that the next two things are going on, that they're recounting to Jesus the ministries that they spoke of, the ministries that others spoke of that were actually Jesus's to fulfill, and they're saying to Jesus, it's happening. You're, you're on your way to Jerusalem. You're on your way to the cross. You're going to die, and you're going to offer this perfect sacrifice that's going to make our sins that are red like scarlet as white as wool. Jesus, you're about to do it. I think that's what's happening. And the reason I think that's going to happen, is, is, that's what's happening, is because what First Peter tells us, that the prophets were, were talking about the Spirit of Christ all along and they're searching in their day and age when this person or when this time would come and then they realized they weren't serving themselves and talking about Christ, they were serving us in these matters of salvation. And now we get to do this and I think these, these, these two had the benefit that so many other prophets, all the other prophets would have wanted to come to Jesus say, you're getting ready to go to Jerusalem. You're going to shed the sacrifice for all time so that all people everywhere can know the Father. And then enters Peter. Hey, Rabbi, it's a good thing you brought us up here. We can build tents. I love how Mark puts it. Because he did not know what to say. We, we give Peter a bad time, because of, really because of this and a couple other times. I'm just going to throw this out there. None of us would have done any better, and the only way we would have done better is if we not said nothing at all. To just stand in that moment and not say anything at all. But Peter goes up, and he goes, hey, uh, it's great we're here. Let's set up tents, and here's the idea. Let's set up tents so these guys can stay a while. Peter is always thinking he has it figured out. Ah, oh, Jesus, I know what you're on to. You're the Christ. I'm going to suffer and die. No, you're not. Ah, oh, Jesus, I know what you're on to. Elijah and Moses are here. Now we're really going to do this. The kingdom of God's going to come. We're going to, you know, look what Moses did to the Egyptians. Look what Elijah did to, to Ahab. This is, we're going to, and, and the prophets of Baal, we're going to do this. We're going to start an uprising right here, right now. Elijah and Moses knew the suffering that Jesus was about to take on. Peter 
still has no idea and is looking for his brand of the kingdom of God. And isn't that dangerous, brothers and sisters, when we start looking for our brand of the kingdom of God instead of sitting squarely under Scripture? When we come with our brand of the kingdom of God to the word of God and to our circumstances around us and say, well, clearly this is what's supposed to happen. Instead of saying, God, what is it that you desire of me? Oh, to love justice, seek mercy, and walk humbly with you. To repent of my sin. To not tolerate deceit and lying. To not tolerate injustice but to seek out the causes of the poor and the marginalized and to make disciples of people around me, to make disciples of my own children. See, this mountain, as one commentator I read pointed out, this was not Mount Horeb where Moses comes down with the law. This was not Mount Carmel where Elijah went and had a showdown with the prophets of Baal and slaughtered them. This was the mountain of the gospel. And I want to point out, lest we forget, that the most significant member of this mountain is not Peter, James, and John. It's not even Elijah and Moses. The most significant member on this mountain in attendance there that day was Jesus. And Moses and Elijah knew it. That this is the one through whom we find salvation, through whom people of all nations can enter the family of God. And then, before anyone could, could really tell Peter, yeah, I imagine Peter comes up to Jesus, interrupts him, Moses, and Elijah, and goes, hey, Jesus, I'm, I'm glad we're up here. We're going to go build three tents. And then before Jesus could even go, oh, because I think he wanted to. I think, I think he wanted to, uh, but in a more righteous way. Um, before he could do that, then the cloud comes. And they're enveloped by a cloud. And this is God's presence. This is, this is the cloud that led the people through the wilderness. This is the cloud that enveloped the mountain while Moses was on it. This is the cloud that filled the temple at the dedication this is God's presence, and he comes and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's like even God in heaven is like, when is Peter just going to just stop? Like, um, but what God does is while Peter is looking at how he can set up this earthly kingdom, his brand of the God's kingdom, God comes and says, Peter, don't think about the tense. Look at my son and listen to him. Because he's not just a Messiah. He's not just a Messiah who, can, who will suffer. He is the son of God Messiah who will suffer and be rose, risen again. So you need to listen to him. There's an affirmation here that was, it was for Jesus, but there was also an affirmation here for the disciples. Disciples, do not miss who you are standing with. Do not miss that this is my son. 
The last time God did this, Jesus was getting ready to start his earthly ministry and actually be led into the wilderness. And so here's another affirmation from God for the next phase of Jesus' ministry on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to be rejected, on his way to be sold for 30 pieces of silver, to die on the cross, and to be risen again. And he goes into that with this affirmation. And it's, it's so interesting here. And we, we see this in, in Scripture with other servants of God. We see it in history with believers that right before great moments of trial and testing, and even in the midst of, there's affirmation from God that his mercy and grace equip us for the moment at hand. They equip us for the moment at hand. Jesus is right after this. Next week, we're going to see just an unbelievably frustrating time for Jesus. As he comes down, and the he just comes down to find the disciples arguing with the crowd. But here on this mountain, he hears from his father, this is my beloved son. I just got to say, how, whatever, however grand Peter's view of Jesus as Messiah was, it was not this big. It was not big enough to have Son of God, Messiah, who suffers. His, his vision of a Messiah was not even big enough to include suffering, and now we have full-on Son of God. That, oh, Jesus, when you were talking about your relationship with the Father, you weren't just saying you feel closer to God than the rest of us. You were being quite literal And it expands the view of Jesus the Christ. And it expands the view that we hold of God's love, that he gave his son. And so they start their way, and they, they, God gets done talking, and every, everything's just play as, plain as day again. And they start their way back down, and Jesus reiterates not just that he is the glorious Christ, but that he is a reminder again that he is the servant who lays himself down. And he gives this really subtle reminder of what he had just talked about in the text, what was six days before for the disciples. Don't tell anyone what you saw until the Son of Man has risen from the dead, which pretty generally assumes the Son of Man is going to die. And so here we see this journey of Jesus from splendor to sacrifice. Where he has gone from just being this walking LED bulb, all the, you know, the heavenly glory on full display for the three disciples, and now he's again saying, I'm going to die. Glory and sacrifice are brought together in Jesus we saw, it, we saw it a couple weeks ago as Jesus heals this man of being blind and says, you know, he's seen as the Messiah and seen as the Messiah who's going to suffer and be rejected. And we're going to see here in just a little bit that he'll suffer and many things and be treated with contempt. And then next week he's going he's to cast out a spirit and tell everyone again that he's going to suffer and die. And Mark is putting these together to help us see that Jesus is glorious and suffers for us. 
that at no point in Jesus' earthly ministry is he a lesser Messiah. He is the full-on Son of God the entire time. He goes from splendor to sacrifice, and he is the fulfiller. But this fulfilling is not all good and rosy. So he tells them, I'm going to... You can talk about this once I rise from the dead. They have no idea what that means. Even though Jesus is speaking very plainly, because they're having a really hard time getting off their idea of what a Messiah is. So then they say, well, they, they, they go back to Elijah. Here they are. Jesus just said, when I rise from the dead. And their next question is, well, why does Elijah have to come first? They're really trying to figure out this Elijah thing. He says he, did, he does come first to restore all things, to preach that people need to repent, to make straight the path for the Lord. And, and then and, and Jesus explains that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever he pleased, that Elijah was, it was the spirit of Elijah on John the Baptist. But there is in the disciples this, I would call it an Elijah desire for this power, for major earthly revival, to stop the oppressors. They wanted the miracles of Elijah, but were, were not looking for the point of Elijah to be to point to someone else. That Elijah was not the point. So in, in, a, in a very similar way, as God had redirected the disciples off of Moses and Elijah, Jesus redirects the disciples back to himself. They ask about Elijah, and he goes, Elijah does come first. And then he's like, here's the question you need to be asking. How is it that it is written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You need to be focused on the Son of Man, on the Son who suffers who lays himself down. Jesus re redirects them to himself. The point is not that this new earthly power is going to be manifested through a mighty man of God, but that, that, a, that the Son of God will come and suffer and die in our place so that we can have full belonging in the kingdom of heaven. And these three disciples, they did what we do so many times. They missed the point. Jesus' coming was not about power in the same way that of Elijah's earthly ministry. Elijah's second coming was not about Elijah's first ministry. It was about directing people to the Son of God. And God is keeping his word. Elijah came. He was mistreated as it would be written. And the Son of Man is about to suffer many things and contempt. They almost missed Jesus because they were looking so hard for a literal carbon copy of Elijah's first ministry. And in our looking for certain kinds of solutions, we can miss Jesus. And we can miss him bad. And sometimes we, we try to find Jesus in very uh, 
unchristlike figures or by very non-Christ-like means, and we think that that will usher in the kingdom of God. And so I want to ask you, what is distracting you from Jesus this morning? If Jesus is over here, what's, what's drawing your attention? What's that noisy thing? What's that, oh, there's a problem to our world, and if I, if I match that man-made problem with a, with a greater, equal, opposite man-made solution, then that'll solve, instead of just looking at Jesus and following Him. I think one of the things that leads us to do that, that, that gives us an internal permission to do that, is we just view Jesus as really pretty subtle. Ah, oh, Jesus came, he gave the Sermon on the Mount, he died on a cross, now he's in heaven, and I'm here to figure it out and to go charge the castle. We do not worship a subtle Savior. We worship a heavenly king who is on the throne and will one day get off the throne. But as long as he's on that throne, we have a responsibility to be obedient to what he's told us to do. To love our neighbors as ourselves, to love each other as he has loved us, and to make disciples. So let us listen to him. As the praise team comes, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the glorious Christ we have who is also our suffering Lord who gave everything for us. Father, we pray that you would turn our hearts and our ears to you. We pray that you would, that you would lead us and you would forgive us for the times that we get too distracted by earthly things. Thank you, Lord. Amen.